0: right, I want to open this morning um, with reading from uh, John chapter 8. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. I think it will come up on the screen as well. John chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 1. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, "'Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. "'In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. "'Now what do you say?' They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left. With the woman standing, still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. For those of you that don't know who I am, my name is Michael and in many, many ways, I am the woman caught in adultery. I am a sexually broken person in need of God's grace and His mercy and His truth. And in many ways, I am a Pharisee filled with pride, judgment, self-righteousness and I am in need of God's mercy, grace and truth. I'm well aware that as we unpack this topic of sexuality, that we are wading into an often controversial and emotionally charged topic. Sexuality and morality can be extremely divisive, and there is a culture war raging all around us. In the world, we have the narratives of the left and the right and liberalism and conservatism and fundamentalism and progressive ideology, but the issue of sexuality is not a war to win. It's not an argument to win. Whenever war is waged, there are always casualties. And as people who are called to the ministry of reconciliation, the day that we pick aside is the day that we forfeit the ministry of reconciliation. Whenever we pick aside, the very people that we are called to reconcile back to the Father become casualties of the war. And that is not what we are called to. So I'm not interested. And winning a culture war, I'm interested in getting Jesus what he paid for, his image restored on the earth. So as we journey through this, I ask that you listen with grace. As we journey through this, I ask that you suspend your presuppositions, and we can learn together. I want to de-escalate this from a debate into a conversation I've prepared for this series like I have never prepared before. I have spent hours reading books, reading articles, reading scripture, sitting with God and praying. I've listened to podcasts of to podcasts. I've watched videos. I've done complete courses on sexuality over the last few weeks. But the thing that has been most important for me is I've taken time to sit with people over coffee and hear their stories. So two things have resulted as I have prepared. The first thing is that I have become increasingly convinced of a historic view of a Christian sexual ethic and God's design for human flourishing. The other thing that has happened is that I have found my heart being filled with compassion Empathy and love for the LGBTQ community and those that are wrestling with their sexuality. See, the world, and often many in church, would say you can't carry both of those tensions, you have to pick a side. But I believe Jesus did. He carried the tensions of truth and grace well. And if I am saying I'm following Jesus and being formed into his image, then I must also. The point is this. We could get the Bible right, but if we get love wrong, then we are wrong. So in the story that we read in John 8, it's not so much about the woman as it is actually about the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. See, this is the reason they brought her to Jesus. They actually weren't looking for his wisdom on the matter. They certainly didn't care about the woman or care about her redemption. They didn't care about her story. She was a tool. She was a pawn in their sick religious and political games. See, I've discovered whenever there are political agendas, people are used as pawns. And usually it's the most oppressed in our society that are victims of these games. See, Jesus says this profound statement, let the sinless person cast the first stone. And the Pharisees are stunned, they're speechless. He has taken the wind right out of their sails. I mean, it appears that they were sure he was going to let this woman go. And then they could accuse him. Then they had him. But instead, he completely upholds the law. He says, in effect, yes, she must be stoned, but I am going to appoint the executioners. And they are stunned at his words. See, there are some really powerful things we can learn from the story as we prepare to posture ourselves with love, grace, humility, and truth for this series. And I think firstly and foremost, we need to ask this question, what is truth? What is truth? Is it a set of facts? Is it the knowledge about what's right and what's wrong? And what does the verse mean that says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free? Does that mean if I know a certain set of facts that all of a sudden I'm gonna be changed and transformed into Jesus? What does it mean that Jesus is the truth? And how can Jesus just be a set of facts? So we need to consider the ideas of objective truth and subjective truth as we journey through this series. See, objective truth has to do with facts. It has to do with what's right and what's wrong. It's not interested in feelings. And here's the Bible is full of objective truth. I think we would probably all agree that the Bible is full of objective truth. It is full of descriptions of what is right and wrong in the eyes of God. But in the person of Jesus, truth is embodied. What is objective now has subjected himself to humanity's broken story. He takes on flesh, not to condemn it, but to redeem it. See, truth incarnates himself into the brokenness of humanity. He sits and he eats with sinners and the outcasts. And listen to this, he is always willing to be misunderstood to bring truth and grace and love to the people that most desperately need to hear it. And I can guarantee you this, I am willing to be misunderstood to sit with those that need to hear truth and grace. So here's my concern as we approach this series. My my concern is that we have a polarized, politicized cultural war, and I think the church has continually forfeited the ministry of reconciliation by choosing sides. We see in the story that we've just read, Jesus refused to publicly play the legal game of do we condemn or do we condone? His love was neither condoning nor condemning, but his love was redemptive. See, once everyone had left, he then speaks to the woman and he delivers these beautiful, grace-filled, empowering words, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. See, in society right now, we have a well-known conservative commentator. You may know his name when I talk about him, Uh, but he has this popular one-liner that goes something like this, facts don't care about your feelings. And I've seen many Christians on social media go, yeah, that's the truth. Facts don't care about your feelings. This man is not a believer. He is not interested in the heart of Jesus. He is not interested in representing Jesus well. But it is true. Facts don't care about feelings. But I do. Facts won't sit in the dirt with the scorned adulteress. Facts won't sit in the puddle with the broken. Facts can't listen to someone's story. Facts don't have empathy or compassion. But thankfully, in the person of Jesus, what was objective took on flesh and came into my broken story, and he walked with me and spoke truth. And grace to me, and I am slowly and surely being changed into the image and likeness of Jesus. See, for us to truly embody the gospel, what is objective has to become subjective and walk amongst humanity's brokenness. See, truth is supposed to be bread to feed. But whenever truth becomes stones to throw rather than bread to feed, it's no longer truth that reveals the heart of Jesus, but it's truth that reveals the heart of the stone thrower. See, our grace must be felt before our truth can be heard. So before we can ever become a community of go and sin no more, we must first become a community of neither do I condemn you. We are all human beings, I hope, I think we are, we're all humans, and we are narrative beings, we are narrative beings, we, we all live out of stories, we are hardwired to create stories in our minds, to make sense of the experiences that we've had, and try and piece together the often fragmented parts of our lives. We make up stories about what people have said and done to us, and then we live out of these stories. Whether they're true or not, we are narrative beings. It happens all the time. I hear of people going, well, this person said this, this, and this, and that means that they think this, this, and this about me. And I'm like, is that, is that true, or is that a story you have made up? It happens all the time. We are narrative beings. We are trying to piece together the fragmented parts of our lives with stories. And we are all shaped and formed by our own stories, the stories of our families, our upbringings, our experiences, our trauma or abuse, our brokenness. We have all been formed and shaped by our stories. And then we all live out of the stories that we believe. You are who you are because of the story that you have believed about yourself. See our father wounds, our mother wounds, our trust issues, our fear of rejection, abandonment, our fear of intimacy, our greed, our lust. All of these are shaping and have shaped our stories. And then we have the external cultural narratives that are bombarding us and telling us that that we should do what we should do and who we should be and what we should believe and what is and isn't acceptable, and we all live from these stories trying to make sense of what life is all about, and this morning what I want to do is compare and contrast what is the secular story and what is often the church story, and then I want to offer you a third story, the story of the kingdom. And then I wanna end with an invitation for us all to trust that Jesus knows better than us and what will lead to human flourishing. That God's design for human flourishing is a story we can trust. And that as we surrender to him, as we repent and believe, the stories that had previously shaped us, the stories that have previously formed us, they fall away and we start to become formed by the story of Jesus. See, we are narrative people. So it's no wonder that Jesus always used stories. He used stories to communicate a truth and and, and so and, and we call these parables we read them in, in scripture and they're called parables but uh, Jesus seemed to get himself into a bit of trouble with these parables and, and it's not so much that he didn't get himself into trouble because he was telling cute stories about farmers and seeds uh, he got himself into trouble because the stories that he told always subverted the cultural narrative of the day the religious and political systems it were offended by the stories that Jesus would tell. They were subverting those stories, those narratives. See, the kingdom of heaven is always subversive to the world's narrative. One of the things that Paul described the kingdom as, he said, it's righteousness, peace, and joy. It's rightness in our relationships with those around us, with God. It's rightness in relationship with creation and peace with those around us and peace with God. And it's joy, it's an unspeakable joy. And so ultimately, when we think about the narratives of the day, secularism also wants this, just without God. Secularism wants utopia just without the presence of Jesus. In Ecclesiastes, it says that that eternity is set on the hearts of all men. I, I think within each person is this deep need and longing for Eden, for the restoration of who we are as human beings that we would have rightness of relationship with God and with those around us, that we would have peace amongst us and with God. Like, secularism ultimately wants the kingdom without the king. Now Jesus, when he finished these parables, often he would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he's saying, repent and believe. Change your mind about who God is and who you are and the world around you and trust the redemptive story of Jesus. See, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about you. He came to change your mind about God. Jesus is God's mind made up about you. You want to know what God thinks about you? Look at Jesus. So ultimately, my goal is that we would become a community of redemptive love, a community of devoted disciples of Jesus, and a community of disciple makers, following the subversive and alternate way of Jesus. So when you see Jesus interacting with the Pharisees, they would always try to pigeonhole him. We see that in this very story we read this morning. Uh, They didn't care about this woman. Uh, They wanted to use her as a tool to trap Jesus. They were trying to pigeonhole him, trying to back him into a corner. And this happens on both sides of the argument of morality. Conservative, liberal, progressive, fundamentalist, whatever it is, if you aren't on my side, you must be on the other side. See, so we live in a society that lives like this. We ask questions like, what do you believe about this? And you better say exactly what I want, otherwise you are other than me. See, so most conversations on morality in our society go something like this. Secular society. We want to do X. The church. You are free to do it. Secular society. But you think X is wrong. The church. Yes. Yes secular society because you want to control us the church no you are free to do what you want secular society but you think x is wrong the church yes but only because we want your ultimate good which is the definition of love secular society but you want to but we want to do x the church you are free to do it the secular society but we want you to say that x is good church we cannot say that. Secular society, why do you hate us? Now, I say that kind of jokingly, it's definitely broad brushed. But I also believe that the church has got itself into a lot of trouble thinking that it should be the world's morality police when we are actually just called to be a moral remnant. We are supposed to show the world a different way of living, thinking, and acting. See, this idea of morality is really important because unfortunately that's where the arguments are often waged. But long before sexuality is about morality, it's about anthropology, and before it's about anthropology, it's about theology. The big words, let me put it this way. Long before it's about what's right and wrong, what are God's commands, who's in, who's out, long before it's about any of that stuff, It is about what does it mean to be a human being? Am I just flesh or do I have a soul? What is a soul? Is there a God? And what's this God's relationship to me? And if there is a God, does he have original design and intent for my life? And does this God have a design for human flourishing? So just like sin is the exhaust fumes of unbelief, morality is just the exhaust fumes of a whole lot of questions about who God is, who am I, and why are we here? And so while the world is arguing about morality, I believe Jesus is inviting us into a story, a story that subverts the dominant cultural narratives, and he calls us to be the faithful, non-anxious, reconciling presence of Jesus in an increasingly confused and anxious world. So we are going to be wrestling with all these different ideas. What has shaped our stories and how are we going to be shaped by the story of Jesus in the midst of a culture that is vying for and distorting our affection and our attention. So that means we are going to be talking about things over the next few weeks that are going to make all of us uncomfortable. Someone said to me, "Uh, Michael, you probably need to be careful. You're probably going to offend a few people. I said, well, I, I think I probably will succeed if, if I've offended everybody. We're gonna have to get a little bit uncomfortable to navigate this well. See, Paul talks about not being ignorant of the enemy's schemes, and, I, and sexuality is not a problem to solve, but a territory to reclaim. And church, if we, if we have any hope of making holistic disciples of Jesus, we have to think well about sexuality and we must embody the redemptive love of Jesus that first transforms us so we can show the world an alternative narrative. See, so I've spent all my life in church. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it. I've probably sat through, you know, like 52 sermons a year, the minimum, For the last 37 years. And then for the last 10 years, I've preached most of them. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But my experience is by and large two things. Two things that I've experienced in church culture with regards to sexuality. The first one is this. Complete silence. of those 34 years of 52 years of uh, 52 weeks of listening to sermons i cannot remember one on sexuality complete silence and we live in a world that has complete sexual saturation and the church has complete sexual silence and then we send our kids out and go good luck The other thing that I have experienced is that when we have spoken, we have spoken out of ignorance. And I need to own this. I have spoken out of ignorance many, many, many times. The more I've sat with this over the last few weeks, the more I've realized that this is not a topic, this is people we are talking about. The more I've studied, the more ignorant I realize I was and still am. We have to engage thoughtfully, deeply, and with humility. John Tyson was reflecting on Ronald Re- uh one of his quotes, he said, good spirituality needs to take seriously the complexity of the human heart. Tyson reflects and says, I wonder if so many are leaving modern evangelicalism because it doesn't do that. Too many easy answers, trite faith and cheap grace. So we've had lots of questions come in over the last few weeks and they are are great questions. Thick questions. And I refuse to give thin answers to thick questions. So before we dive in, I wanna qualify a few things. I am not an expert, I am learning, I'm seeking understanding. And we've got a little image that might sort of show my journey. Have we got that to show up there on the screens? This is pretty much where I started. We're going to do a series on sexuality. Oh, I know everything. Then I sort of went into this deep lull of, I'm never going to get my head around this. And I felt totally overwhelmed at one point. Now it's starting to make some sense, but I would love to say to you, trust me, it is complicated. See, this is the classic Dunning-Kruger effect. We, we are always most certain of the things we know the least about. See, when we have a discussion, that's an exchange of knowledge, but an, ar- an argument is an exchange of Ignorance. So I don't want to tell you what to think about sexuality. I want us to learn together how to think about sexuality holistically. How are we doing? We're doing okay. We're not going to have time for questions this morning. I'm sorry. I'm like, I want to. I want to get to where I want to get to this morning. So, so who is this series for? Who is this series for? Firstly, I want to say who it's not for. This series is not for perfect Christians. If you're a perfect Christian, this series is not for you. You're going to be frustrated and you're going to go, How can people struggle with those things? It's not for you. It's not for people who are not interested in either being a disciple or making disciples of Jesus. See, the fundamental question that we all must ask is Do I believe that God has original intent and original design for human flourishing for my life? And do I trust God's design for this? And I, I think it's important that we consider that here at Awaken we have a permission and responsibility culture. That means that everyone has permission to believe what they want and, and, and live it out. However, with permission comes responsibility. Uh, Jesus said this in John 12. He said, if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I, I do not judge them. Basically, he's saying, here's the truth. Believe it or not, I don't judge you. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But then he said this, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke will judge him at the last day. In other words, there is consequences for what we believe. We need to take responsibility for the things that we believe and how we live those things out. So I believe that God does have a design for human flourishing, and it's summed up in the life teachings and ministry of Jesus, and as we follow him in obedient loyalty, it will lead us to a holistic, life-giving way of love. To not do that, I believe, leads to a more fractured, destructive, chaotic, and disordered way of living. And if I didn't believe this, I should quit right now. See, I genuinely believe that following Jesus is the most life-giving way to live in this world. And you might say, I don't believe that, Michael. That's fine. But this is what church is about. Church is about people who are saying, I want to live my life and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. So this is for people. That genuinely want to follow Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's also for people who want to make disciples. People who want to make disciples. This is not a series so that we can figure out all the rights and wrongs and put everything into little, nice, neat boxes and draw all the religious lines that we need to. This is not for that. Uh, um, I've been really appreciating a a podcast from a a place called uh, Church Leaders. They have a Facebook uh, page as well, and I follow that. Over the last, like, three or four months, they've been doing a whole lot of stuff on sexuality, and it's been really helpful. Um, Interviewing a whole lot of people with different perspectives and different stories, and it's been really great. It's been really interesting to see the amount of comments on each of those posts and how ignorant... (laughs) They are. You know, just real like, this is a sin, end of story. And, and I'm going, what about discipleship? W- what about walking with people? What about truth and grace? What about loving people? And, and this is why I believe that discipleship is the answer to every broken story in the world. Because we have to disciple someone, you have to take what is objective. And make it subjective and walk amongst humanity's brokenness. You cannot disciple people with facts. You have to walk with people. And so this is for people who want to learn how to make disciples. So if we want to show the world the goodness of God and get Jesus what he paid for, we have to humble ourselves and admit that just as the world hasn't got sexuality right, in many, many ways neither have we. Ronald Reilheiser said this, the church has always struggled with sex, but so has everyone else. There aren't any cultures, religious or secular, pre-modern or modern, post-modern or post-religious that exhibit a truly healthy sexual ethos. Every church and every culture struggles with integrating sexual energy, if not in its creed about sex, at least in the living out of that creed. Secular culture looks at the church and accuses it of being uptight and anti-erotic, and partly this is true. But the church might well protest that much of its sexual reticence is rooted in the fact that this is one of the few voices that's still remaining who are challenging anyone towards sexual responsibility. As well, the church might also challenge any culture that claims to have found the key to healthy sexuality to step forward and show the evidence. No culture will take up that claim. Everyone is struggling. For us to approach this topic, we must humble ourselves. So let's have a look at some of the sexual narratives that are going on in our world and then we'll, we'll close for the morning. So the first one I wanna talk about is the, the secular cultural narrative. And this is based on the premise of self, that you find yourself in yourself. These ideas that we are just animals, our bodies have no purpose, life itself was pretty much meaningless, and depending on how much money you have determines how and how much happiness you will experience. These ideas that I am, my sexual desire, and true authentic happiness will be found when I can freely live out my sexual desire. One of the key myths or ideas of this narrative is the idea that whatever I do with my body does not affect me spiritually, emotionally, or mentally. Freedom is defined by ideas of consent. As long as there are two consenting adults, then we can play out whatever sexual desires we want. There is no thought to responsibility or consequences or emotional and spiritual ramifications. Freedom is often defined as no restraints or responsibility. Freedom means I can do what I want, be what I want, go where I want, and any restraints that are imposed on me are oppressive. In other words, keep your laws off my body. Life is a glorious or not so glorious, depending on how much money you have, but a glorious accident. There's no creator, which means there's no creation, which means there is no design and no purpose. Life is meaningless, so, I, so feel free to find meaning in whatever you want, but we certainly don't need God to see our world flourish. God is just a dead weight. In other words, I'm not worth much, but thankfully neither are you, so let's have some fun. In a secular society, happiness is the pinnacle of the human experience and anything or anyone that gets in the way of my happiness is wrong or against me. And this is causing a huge dissonance in in, in our society that has very, very little framework for suffering and loss. The secular vision of the world is not working. We have increasing mental health problems, more sexual trauma and suicide is on the rise. See, it's all based on this idea of the sovereignty of self. And this is mostly played out in the ideas of individualism, consumerism, and materialism. And, And here is where the fundamental clash with the gospel comes. We think it's morality, but this is where the fundamental clash with the gospel comes, because as followers of Jesus, we have a radically different perspective on identity and the world around us. We believe that identity is first and foremost found in the ideas of being in christ that our identity is anchored to him he defines us and the love of the father is central to these ideas of security and provision and protection and identity and this is not an abstract idea or notion or just a bunch of facts but because the holy spirit has taken up his residence on the inside of us we literally feel these things But secularism's narrative is that all-meaning purpose and identity and worth is found in ourselves. It's the elevation of self, the sovereignty of self. I am my feelings, desires, and attractions. However, at the center of the gospel is the call to follow Jesus, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And those that do this find true life and identity. See, the gospel was an affront to the humanistic, secular culture. It's offensive to this idea of self. So when when we have these ideas of the sovereignty of self, we are like boats anchored to ourselves. We cannot weather the storms of life. No wonder we have the most anxious generation of all time. One of the other things that I think we need to be aware of when we think about the modern secular narrative is the fruit that it's creating with regards to sexuality. Individualism is creating absolute chaos for our young people. They are the most connected digitally, yet the most isolated and lonely generation. Young people are having sex 50% less than previous generations. Yes, I said that, 50% less than previous generations, and this is not a good thing. We have the whole loner culture in Japan where young men and women aren't dating anymore. They are so digitized they don't even know how to interact with one another anymore, let alone flirt and start a relationship. Porn has a massive deal to do with all of this because everything is digitized. Japan has a massive culture of sex robots and waifus. A waifu is a robot that you have married. Melinda Selms, in her book, Sexual Authenticity, says this. This is reasonably long, but listen. Underneath the pop and fizzle of a sexological enthusiasm lies a fundamental despair, not necessarily about life itself, but about the body. This seems counterintuitive. Surely the sexual revolution is about the celebration of the body over and against the pretense that love ends below the neck. Yet beneath all of this pageantry of free sex and self-love, there is a fundamental belief that the body doesn't mean anything, that it is insignificant in a literal sense, signifying nothing. You can do anything you like with it. You can pleasure it with a vacuum cleaner or get a drunken stranger in an alleyway to whip it, and you can give it to anyone for any reason. It's just a sort of wet machine a tool that you can use in exchange for whatever purpose suits your fancy. In order to believe this, you must either accept A, that your body is not you, it is just a shell or a juicy robot, that the real you, that disembodied ghost controls, or B, that there is no such thing as human value or dignity, it's just a nice pretense that we make because we are terrified of the senseless and nihilistic universe, Honestly, Christianity, which has always been accused of putting God before man, stands alone against a host of modern philosophies, philosophies, declaring that man is a unified and complete being, composed of both the mind with the free will and the body, all of which has dignity and meaning. Humanizing Sorry, humanizing... Yeah. Humanism, after its promise of its first flowering, has not managed to produce the integrated and holistic meaning of the human person and has created dualisms and disembodied rationalisms, mindless materialism. At the heart of the modern philosophical project is the attempt to understand human existence without reference to God. This is so much deeper than morality. And I want you to listen to this. Jesus did not come to restore our morality. He came to restore our humanity. And if we're just arguing at the morality level, we have missed it. How are we going for time? Do you want me to keep going? I I really feel like I need to get this intro out so we have a good framework. Are we right? Right, let me give you the church narrative, the the purity narrative. Uh, This is full of good objective truth, but it's very reductionist and incomplete. It's actually a reactionary narrative. It's a reaction against the world's culture rather than actually what is the kingdom of heaven about. So the purity narrative is very, very focused on morality rather than human flourishing. It's a focus on what's wrong, what's right, strongly focused on the shall nots and and the what's never, well, very rarely focused on the why. And, And it's this idea that God particularly hates sexual sin. You know, we talked about the statistics of you know 50 you know, kids these days, 50% less sex. The purity narrative would probably say, yeah, you know, we've got to stop those horny teenagers having sex, you know, like woo But it's wholly missing that this is about humanity, not about morality. That there's these ideas that we need to push down any sexual desire rather than framing it in a healthy way. And so we can end up with similar narratives as the uh, secular narrative of dualism, that all flesh is bad and all spirit is good. And so we have sexual silence and sex and sexuality is kind of this forbidden thing that we don't talk about until marriage when it's totally okay. For some reason now it's okay. Why? Why? I never got told why. I don't know about you growing up, but I never got told why. So we have this world of total sexual, sexual saturation in a church which has total sexual silence. And and the other thing that happens with the purity culture, which we are currently seeing huge damage from, people are going to counselors and there's a whole counseling system set up for people who are damaged by the purity culture in the church. And the guy who wrote one of the most popular purity culture books, he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye when he was 19, has now walked away from the faith. Essentially, it is basically the prosperity gospel applied to sexuality. If this, then that. If you save yourself from marriage, then you will have a perfect marriage and amazing sex life. There's a lot of fear, shame, and guilt, and those that fail are left feeling like second-class Christians and broken goods. And what often happens, and especially it seems with women, because most religious things seem to Be focused on women. What often happens is that they end up seeing that every issue in their marriage is God punishing them for them not staying pure enough. It gives no context for a sexually broken society and how to navigate faith or discipleship and it devalues singleness. See, people are deconstructing their faith right now because they think these are the only two options. But thankfully, Jesus gives us a third way. And we're going to leave that for next week. (laughs) So I want to finish this morning. I invite you to stand and the music team can come. That'd be great. Thanks. I wanna invite us this morning to posture ourselves before God. And I want us to posture ourselves in humility. I want us to suspend our presupposition. Can we all just admit that we are all sinners in desperate need of His grace and His mercy? Let's all admit that we don't know what we don't know Let's all see one another as equals, as image bearers, as human beings, no one more righteous than another. But all of us are just spiritual beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. And so I'm gonna invite you this morning to posture yourself. And I, I believe that we posture our, our heart's posture in our physical posture. And so I'm gonna invite you if you want to, to get on your knees with me this morning as we posture ourselves before God. And I want to read a prayer that I've written for us all. So I invite you now, if you are physically able, I realize some people may not be physically able. let encourage you to posture your heart in the same way that your body is now postured. Paul said to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. As Father, as we posture ourselves in humility this morning, we ask for your fresh mercy. We bring every area of our lives to the cross, especially our sexuality. We bring our brokenness and our pain. We bring our desires and needs to you, the giver of life. We choose to suspend our judgments and our rights in order to see your kingdom. We ask Holy Spirit, would you convict us of our righteousness? May we see our sin as toxic disease that you alone can cure. We thank you, Jesus, that you are truth incarnate. You are the evidence of God's heart towards us and we thank you that you chose humility and came into our broken story, not to condemn, but to save and redeem. And We offer our bodies as living sacrifices to you. May we be transformed by your truth and grace as we choose to trust you the way the truth and the life amen